Our gracious God, we thank you for this time that we have together, together before we gather in corporate worship in celebration of the, our risen King and Lord. We pray for this hour that you might be with us, that it might be a time uh, profitable to us, to our souls, to us as we uh, strive to be better interpreters of your holy word. Thank you for those who have come. We pray that you help us to uh, be attentive and that you would speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so welcome to class 11 of how to interpret the Bible. And if you were here last week, our brother PJ shared in class 10 general guidelines for interpreting figures of speech and Proverbs. So for those of you who were here last week, let's see how many of the figures of speech we can come up with. <laughs> there were 10 of them. I can't say some of them. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so just... A metaphor. Metaphor, okay, yes. Simile, yes. Yeah, I had to. Mirrorism, yes. Wow. Synodoct. Somebody was paying attention. Yep. Well, they're looking at their paper from that side. Well, that helps. <laughs> that's a genre yeah uh, no 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 <laughs> Not, yeah and diades and diades yes idiom idiom yes all right the one that Rob Roy spoke about Remember that one? No. Anthropomorphism, yes. Okay. <laughs> Personification, I heard back there. Yeah. How many more? Two? Two that I see. Do you grade on a curve? Metonymy, <laughs> right? Metonymy. And uh, did anybody say uh, synctidote? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. And, and so somebody already said, you were about to, okay. So the only one we haven't heard is light totes? Yeah, light Okay. <clears throat> All right, that's it. That's a hard review question. <laughs> okay, the next one uh, should be easier, but maybe not the way I did it. Hey, and this is in dealing with um, Proverbs. So a blank is a concise observation of the blank workings of life. Proverb is a concise observation on the general, normal, normal. It's not inherently a promise, but pragmatic wisdom that may have many exceptions. Yes, okay. <laughs> so let's go ahead and begin this week's lesson. Um, because of the structure of the book, it worked out to cover three chapters this week, so we're going to have to go through it. Pretty quickly. <clears throat> we'll start out with question 29. How do we interpret poetry? And as we've seen with many of the biblical genres that we've considered in this class already, poetry is not a pure genre. Poetry occurs within many biblical genres. For example, we find it in Proverbs, in historical narratives, in prophecy, and in the Psalms. And to properly understand poetry, we must first recognize the text is poetic 
Secondly, understand the assumptions underlying poetry. And third, employ sound hermeneutical principles in interpreting the various poetic forms. So first, how do we recognize when poetry is being employed? Hebrew and Greek poetry rarely rhyme, so already that makes it hard for us. <laughs> Rather, such poetry is recognized by repeated syllables or stress patterns, parallel lines, and repetition of similar sounds. And we'll look at um, all of these a little bit more in a moment. None of these, however, are easily translated into other languages, including English. So how then can we recognize when we are reading biblical poetry? Other than knowing what books of the Bible typically contain poetry, we are pretty much dependent on the translators and the publishers of our Bibles. And fortunately for us, they do a pretty good job of cluing us in on when we're reading poetry. <clears throat> so what is it? How can you think of that they do that? Think of the book of the Psalms. How do the translators and publishers show us that that is poetry? Okay, so there's the wide margins, and then there's groupings of verses, groupings of stanzas. <clears throat> so that's how the publisher lets us know that, hey, this is poetry you need to think about in a different way. So going on to the next thing, the assumptions underlying poetry. Poetry may be employed by the writer for several reasons, uh, two of the main reasons being to make their words more memorable. I mean, in, indeed, a large part of Jesus's followed um, his speech followed the Semitic poetry form and as the greatest teacher who ever lived you know he used poetry to make it easier for us to remember what his hearers were saying and so in regard to this think about a good portion of the Sermon on the Mount a good portion of the Sermon on the Mount is actually poetry if you look at it the second a second reason is to express or, or evoke strong emotions when we read poetry, we don't expect to find scientific facts and lists of things, right? <laughs> we expect to be presented with a moving reality and to be moved ourselves to be enter into that reality. And so in that regard, think of the Song of Solomon, right? So <clears throat> very moving. So let's move on to some common poetic forms, um, and we'll look at some... Some psalms that, as examples, where we can, and they're a little, they might be a little technical, but we're going to look at it because the book did. <laughs> and you'll have it in your notes. You might be able to use it in the future. So the first type of the first poetic form we're going to look at is synonymous parallelism. So whoever has the mic, if we could read Psalm 58, 52.8. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. So this was not super clear, but we see here two, two poetic lines that are very close in meaning, if not synonymous. And while the first one might seem a little obscure, the second line makes it clearer. So without the second synonymous line, we might be left puzzling how David is considering himself to be an olive tree. But the second line seems to clarify that by his trusting in the Lord's provision, he can exhibit sustained fruitfulness throughout his life as, as an olive tree would. A second type of um, poetry form would be antithetical parallelism. This one is a little easier one. If we, 
whoever has the mic, look at the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Okay, this is a more obvious one, like I said. The second line contrasts with the first line with an opposing truth. Brought down the proud, raised up the humble. Okay, the next form is synthetic parallelism. Just back up one verse, Luke fifty-one or Luke one fifty-one. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. So this one again is a little bit harder to distinguish. Here, the second line provides additional information to such a degree that it can no longer be called synonymous with the first line. Here, the second line does more than just restate the first. It goes way beyond and gives a specific example of a mighty deed that the Lord has done. That is the scattering of the proud. The next form is XX plus one, poetry form, Proverbs 30, 18 and 19. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden. So this was one of the more obvious ones, right? Three things, four things, X, X plus one. The next one is repetition of similar sounds. And without knowing the original languages, this form is kind of beyond us, (laughs) unless we have a footnote in our Bible or a comment and a commentary that points this out. So I don't have an example of this. (laughs) The next form would be acrostic. And in this form, you're probably familiar with this to some extent, successive verses of the psalm would start with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And again, without knowing the letters of the original language, the Hebrew alphabet, this form is beyond us, except uh, if a study Bible tells us a comment or there's comments in a commentary. However, we are familiar with acrostics in general. I'm sure that we all have heard of the acrostic for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E. Mm-hmm. So we're familiar with the, the idea of an acrostic. And the last um, poetic form is a chiasm. So Mark two twenty seven. <clears throat> then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay. So a chiasm is a series of two or four more elements followed by to corresponding series of elements in reverse order. So here we have Sabbath, man, man, Sabbath. <clears throat> so these are some ways that help us recognize that we are um, interpreting poetry. Moving on to question 30, how do we interpret the Psalms? And this first section deals with classifying the Psalms as to type of Psalms that we find. Although part of the broader genre of poetry, the book of Psalms makes up a different and well-known portion of scripture that deserves special attention. The author lists seven common types of Psalms, and these are taken from the book entitled The Hermeneutical Spiral, A Comprehensive Introduction to Biblical Interpretation by Grant R. Osborne. So the first type of Psalm we'll look at is a lament Psalm, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. 
lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Thank you. So lament psalms are the most widely widespread subgenre in the book of Psalms. About a third of the Psalter is composed of lament psalms. And in these psalms, as we've heard Jasmine read, an individual or group calls out to God from their distress for help. A second type of psalm would be a praise psalm, Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Thank you. So in this psalm, God is praised for being the Savior of Israel. Praise psalms commonly have the following basic structure. They have an address to God, a call to oneself or to others to join in worship. Third, an enumeration of the reasons or reasons to praise God and for the blessings or blessings that they are receiving in worship. So we see all four of these structures in the psalm that Jeremy just read for us. The next type of psalm is a thanksgiving psalm, Psalm 107, verses 1 through 9. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Man, so these psalms... Thank God for answering the request, the request of the worshiper or worshipers. They can be written for individuals or, as in this case, for groups, as we see in this psalm. Fourth type of psalm we look at are our celebration psalms, Psalm 24 and Psalm 87. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O doors, O ancient doors, excuse me, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? 
the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Thank you, Gerald. And Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of him are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Thank you. So these psalms celebrate God's covenant relationship with the king and with the nation. So we read an example of each of these two subsets of celebration. Psalm 24 is termed a royal psalm, and it celebrated the king of Israel as God's representative ruler and also as a representative of the nation before God. And Psalm 87 is an example of what's termed a song of Zion, which is, as the author of the book states, thunders with praise for God's choice of Jerusalem or Zion as the location of his temple, pilgrimage festivals, and chosen king. So a fifth um, type of, of psalm we want to consider is, the, is a wisdom psalm, Psalm 1. <clears throat> Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Thank you. Stephen, as we see in this psalm, wisdom psalms deal with topics such as the source and nature of true wisdom. They deal with questions about injustice experienced and witnessed in life. They recast the themes of wisdom literature, such as the Proverbs, as songs of worship. And as such, they often serve as a theology text for those who would make use of them in that regard. The sixth type of psalm we want to look at is a penitential psalm, Psalm 32. Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. Uh, 
I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. Thank you, Rob Roy. So penitential psalms, whether individual, as Psalm 32 that we just read, or corporate, give voice to the psalmist's repentance. And probably the most well-known penitential psalm is Psalm 51, David's psalm of repentance once he had been confronted by Nathan over Bathsheba and the death of Moriah, the murder of Moriah the Hittite. The last type of psalm we were going to consider is imprecatory psalms. So if we could have Psalm 109, verses 1 to 15. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against you, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hated for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. Many his days be few, oh, may his days be few, and may another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has, and may strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off, and may his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Okay. So those are some pretty pretty serious words. <laughs> and precatory psalms obviously are called, sometimes referred to as cursing psalms, and they're characterized by the speaker calling on God, obviously, to enact divine justice, judgment against the psalmist's enemies. In doing so, he releases his emotions, and he relies on God, who is the true judge, who can discern the hearts and knows who should be judged and how best to judge. And we see, obviously see this vividly in this portion of the psalm we've read. And it goes on if we were <laughs> to finish it. <laughs> hey, Mark, do you mind if I make a comment? Go ahead. I have not studied the psalms um, <clears throat> to the degree that I would here can expound on this further, that the imprecatory psalms are such that, um, and I don't, again, I'm not sure if this is the case, but that it is always a psalm of David. He as the authorized uh, king on earth, representing the king in heaven, is the one that is is bringing forth the judgment or asking for the judgment upon by heaven upon this one that heaven deems uh, evil against the kingdom of God against God Himself. Anybody have any co- here? Rob Roy has a comment. <laughs> well, in Revelation, you have the the cry of the church triumphant, saying, how long, O Lord? Mm -hmm. 
And there's a good case that that's an imprecatory cry. How long? How long? So there is a federal headship that represents um, the people, um, but there's an element where the people can pray the imprecatory prayers. But one of the good news pieces of this is when you go to uh, King Balak and the prophet Balaam, the request was that an imprecatory or a curse be brought down against Israel. And Balaam said, uh, that's not going to happen, but I'll take your money, but that's not going to happen. Uh, and surely enough, when he opened his mouth, it was blessing and not curse. And so the Lord will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And those whom the Lord is for, um, you know, who, who can be against us if the Lord is for us? But who, who can stand if the Lord is against them, right? This, this is the combination here. So this is why the people of the Lord rejoice. And they do not call good evil, and they don't call evil good. And so if you love the Lord and you love righteousness, you will hate evil. And an imprecatory prayer, a prayer of cursing, will be the righteous thing to do. Thank you. That's good. I'm going to give a, another layer here. Um, so much of Christianity is I'm learning more and more dimensional. And Mark, I won't step on you all your time here. But I'm also challenged with, in the New Testament, we're taught to, to love our enemy. Well, certainly he's speaking of the manner in which we engage people. We engage them by giving them water if they're thirsty, and we give them food if they're hungry. So I'm trying to reconcile those as I listen to the imprecatory psalms and, you know, how does that work out and what does that look like? Should I be cursing? I mean, yes, maybe I am cursing and the evil and loving the, you know, all that stuff is working out. I'm just letting the, the, the church know that, at least from my standpoint, I haven't resolved it in my head. So there you go. Right. <clears throat> and to your, to your point, I mean, I did read in the, one of the things I read said often the imprecatory psalms were prayed on behalf of the nation, not individuals, but on behalf of the nation of Israel. Mm. And so now it would be on behalf of the church in, in, our, in our times. And they also said, be careful praying imprecatory psalms toward another individual because, you know, the old saying is when you point a finger, you have three fingers pointing back. There are things that you've done in your life that they could certainly pray that kind of psalm against you as well. <laughs> I think Sean had a comment. I'm going to give you this real quick. Oh, sure. By the way, I appreciate everyone chipping in here uh, with what Rob Boy said and what you just mm -hmm. said. It's helpful to me. Um, yeah, I think about what you just said, Mark, and I think of how, you know, sometimes where I've kind of been praying through an impeccatory psalm in relation to something in my own life. And um, uh, what you're saying is so true because how how could you know often we're ignorant of our own sin right or, or of our own shortcomings, and so uh, yeah, being careful, being wise about that is makes so much sense. Um, thank you for saying that. So what I was going to bring up is just that the Psalms are you know they were the the book of worship for for ancient Israel. And, and as such, we just see throughout the Psalms this wondrous God-centered focus. You know, it's everything about the Psalms is hiding the psalmist in God, you know. You can think of it that way. Um, you know, that uh, it, it is a model for, you know, how, how we should approach God. Um, 
So just something to think about there. Thank you. So fascinating. The church could pray, and the church could pray, i.e., sing because the psalms are sung in an imprecatory psalm, and it would be accurate. <laughs> it would be theologically accurate. So yeah. praise be to God. I wouldn't. I did not think that through to that level before. <laughs> So what you're isolating for the imprecatory is a real important point, which is there's a corporate aspect to it more so than a personal aspect to it. Of course, corporately is made up of individual persons, but, but the, the manner is corporate. So as we sing, we sing corporately, but we also pray individually and we pray corporately. And so the point here is how important all of Scripture is, and there's certain parts that cannot be done alone. And there's certain prayer that cannot be done alone. It needs to be done corporately. And so um, kind of a play here for the church to assemble, um, of, of course, for worship. And part of that is corporate prayer. You know, we need each other to do that. Mm-hmm. Amen. Beautiful reality about the church. Amen. Okay, sorry about that, Mark. Okay, so let's go on to question, question 31 then. How do we interpret Psalms' principles for interpretation? So the author presents 10 principles to help us as we seek to rightly interpret the Psalms. The first one is note the organization of the book of Psalms. With 150 songs, the Psalter is the longest book in the Bible, and because of its length, it can be helpful to note the structural divisions in the book. So the Psalms is broken up into books 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, with book one being Psalm 1 through 41, book two, 43 through 72, and so on, to book five, Psalm 107 to 150, respectively. And there are various reasons that I read for why there is this division, but there's not a consensus for anybody. Nobody seems to to agree. One thing, one consideration was it was a, a conscious imitation of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, one was the five distinct books facilitated a regular reading schedule in the synagogue. One author proposed that the five books show a developing Davidic theme that progresses through each five book, five books. So a second um, principle for interpreting the Psalms is to read the Psalms. It can be easy to get distracted from the main thing and spend inordinate amount of time, amounts of time reading introductory information or the latest critical study about the psalms when the prophet is mainly derived from just reading the psalms themselves. So let's look um, here is Psalm 40 verse 8. A lot of you may have this memorized. Isaiah 48. <laughs> the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the, our God will stand forever. So the word of our God is the main thing, so we need to make it the main thing. A third principle for interpreting the psalm is to, to label the subgenre of the psalms. And we looked at identifying the importance of identifying the types of psalms in the previous question that we just looked at. So we'll move on to number four. Note any contextual information given in the psalm headings. So many psalms have superscriptions giving the author and sometimes the occasion of the psalm. So let's read the superscription for Psalm 51, just the very top, not the psalm itself. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. OK. 
Okay, so if we pay attention to the superscriptions associated with various psalms, such as Psalm 51, we'll see that almost half, 73 by the count of this author, and um, the Septuagint counts 84 psalms are ascribed to King David, so almost half of the whole book is ascribed to King David. 12 to Asaph, 12 to the sons of Korah, 2 to Solomon, 1 to Heman the Ezraite, 1 to Ethan the Erahite, 1 to Moses, and 48 have no attribution given at all. So, but if we pay attention to the heading information supplied with the psalm, we can bring additional context and information pertaining to what the author may have been going through in his life at the time when he authored the psalm. All that will give us a clearer picture of how to interpret the psalm and how to determine the author's intent, which is our goal. A fifth um, way to uh, principle for interpreting the psalms is pay attention to the segmentation of the psalm. We spoke a little bit about this as Hebrew poetry. Psalms are divided into various lines and stanzas based on markers in the original Hebrew text. And again, English readers are dependent on the translators to faithfully convey the poetic segmentation of the original text. Fortunately for us, again, the translators do this very well. As we interpret the Psalms, we should strive to follow the structure provided. For example, if the Psalm has four stanzas, we should look for four corresponding applications or propositions as we seek to interpret that Psalm. Number six, recognize the poetic language of the Psalm. And again, we've looked at this in question 29, the very first question we looked at this morning in dealing with how to recognize poetic language. Number seven principle is to explore messianic significance of the psalm. As so many of the psalms were written by King David, this is an important principle to consider. In some psalms, the author appears to be conscious that his words were pointing forward to a specific preeminent descendant, a propositional prediction, as the author terms it, of one who is to come. So let's look at Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11 in conjunction with Acts 2, 29 to 31. I threw a curve at him and changed location. Acts 16, 8 to 11. (laughs) Psalm 16, 8 through 11. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And along with this, Acts 2, 29 to 31. Acts 2, 29-31. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Okay, this is... Peter, in his Pentecostal sermon, he seems to be saying that when David penned the words, 
in Psalm 16, he was conscious that they would ultimately be fulfilled in a specific preeminent descendant of his, that is, the Messiah. While other Psalms read most naturally as having an initial reference to David's own life and are best understood as being typological. So Psalm 69.4. Psalm 69.4. More in numbers than the hair of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What did I not steal must I now restore. So in this psalm, David can be seen as the type, with Jesus being the anti-type or the fulfillment. Thus, if David endured opposition of godless around him, how much more will the preeminent righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, endure the opposition of the wicked toward himself? So only context will indicate where the New Testament authors are claiming a psalm as a propositional prediction or as a typological correspondence. Um, Principle eight is to pray the psalms. The psalms are poems and songs, but also prayers, covering the entire range of emotions and experiences that we as humans experience in this life. Even more, they are inspired prayers, teaching us to pray for things in the ways that God desires. We're given examples both of individual and corporate prayers. Think of the Lord's Prayer as a corporate prayer, which we do well to avail ourselves of in our everyday lives and it's to our detriment not to do so. A ninth principle for interpreting the Psalms is to memorize the Psalms. One way to begin praying the Psalms, or any part of Scripture for that matter, is to memorize them. Then they're available for us for meditation, not only during our times of daily devotions, but also as we go through about our mundane tasks of our everyday lives. Let's look at Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Amen. So which of us would not profit from having the Word of God in our minds and on our lips throughout our whole day as we go through the day? And number 10 principle for interpreting the Psalms is to sing the Psalms. Just as we can't go wrong praying and memorizing the Psalms, we can't, cannot go wrong by singing the Psalms. God's own inspired words back to Him and to ourselves and one another joining the heavenly and earthly choruses that have been echoing for more than 3,000 years. So so today we looked at ways to recognize and interpret poetry. We've also looked at subtypes of biblical poetry, one being the Psalms, seeing the different types of Psalms and how to interpret the Psalms. pray that this study will be profitable, has been for me profitable for all of us as we seek to rightly interpret Uh, this genre of scripture. PJ, comments? Um, I was just going to note, too, I think we, a lot of times, we get caught up in the poetry and the music of it, but I found it's amazing how much um, history and, like, narrative is filled in as well, and theology by the Psalms Mm -hmm. beyond just um, the musical aspects, Mm -hmm. but also, I think... um, I uh, forget who the person was that I heard this from, but 
um, someone noted that what's really helpful in our theology of God or our theology of prayer is this is the one book of the Bible in which it's not, um, uh, it is both God speaking to us as with all books of the Bible, but this is the one in which it's us speaking to God or someone speaking to God. And so um, I think in particular, the, the fact that all the prayers are about God, even in the requests and things like that, there's just, there's just so much value to be had by, by reading these Psalms. And I think as much as we've all memorized Psalms, it's probably one of those things in which if you think about the, okay, but what's the theology of Psalms? What is, how do you understand how you're supposed to approach God through Psalms? All of those things. It's probably one of the areas that I've looked at commentaries the least and studied the least because you just feel like it's on it. Uh, there's so much surface value um, that it probably gets neglected. So I just, I think there's overall a lot of value to Psalms beyond just the poetic and musical nature as well. Amen. Thank you. Yes. They are indeed rich in theology. <laughs> and that's why singing the Psalms is a great way to become theologically more literate as well, our kids as well as us. Any other um, comments? Brandon. <clears throat> so I've... Uh, like encountered situations where people were trying to argue that certain portions of scripture because they're poetic they use that excuse to essentially make it mean whatever they want it to mean um, they're like oh well it's poetry so there's not a seven day creation don't you know it's 14 billion years <laughs> so like I just wanted to throw that out there and ask maybe your thoughts on how to refute that um, because a lot of people are like or you know even if it's like something that's like calling out sin and they're like well they didn't really mean that because it's poetry mm -hmm. so I think in our current society we tend to me think poetry means it's up you know in this postmodern world it's how does it make you feel? It's all about feelings, and that's how you determine the truth of the poetry is how does it make you feel? Yeah. <clears throat> so it's, yeah, seen as being mystical and therefore, you know, not, what? Open to, interpretation. Uh, open to interpretation, right. So, I mean, someone coming from that perspective, obviously, is not interpreting scripture properly, and so you're not going to be able to sit down with them and say, now, these are the principles you need to go through to interpret scripture to interpret this correctly but you do need to say well this is what the word of God says and and it um, it was written this way for this purpose and um, it's not some mystical wishy-washy thing that you can take however you you desire to take it I mean the word of God was meant to be interpreted as he inspired the writer to write it and so to try to interpret another way is really denying the inspiration of scripture it's rejecting the word of God basically and so <clears throat> you just have to say this is this is the way God intended it to be interpreted read it and interpreted it's not you it's not your words it's the words of God the word of God any other comments uh, 
Mark, I would add that, that uh, we see in different parts of poetry, and again, because it's poetry, it'll get explained on the second line, so we can go to other places, mm-hmm. uh, as well as even in the narrative. We'll pull narrative uh, phraseology into there because it already has a, a, an intended meaning, mm-hmm. and so it automatic, it's a, that's a meaning is implied and carried forth or uh, given more or greater detail. So it's just bunk what the, the person right. is saying. That there's People. rules of interpretation that need to be followed. Right, and people who would argue, like Brandon was think, speaking of, they're ones that are just going to pull things out of context rather than let Scripture interpret Scripture and do it properly. Right. So, boy, we got hands everywhere. we got time for a couple uh, quick ones, <laughs> and then we got to pray. <laughs> just a super quick thought that poetry doesn't necessarily mean that it's fiction. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> Good job, Jerry. <laughs> For those who want to dig a deeper into the Psalms, Richard P. Belcher Jr. has written a book about the Messiah in the Psalms, right? And his position is all the Psalms contains a link back to Christ. Some is subtle, but he, in his position is he explains where he thinks it is. Mm-hmm. Some uh, uh, critics say that I mean, some of his is a stretch, but he he firmly believes what he he wrote. Yeah, and it's available on Amazon for nineteen ninety nine. And Gary will provide a copy to anyone who wants it. Because <laughs> I read, yes, in the in the book that commentators like Bruce Waltke and even uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they would argue that all the Psalms ultimately are messianic messianic uh, at, in, at the end when you get to the end if you take it to the end okay thank you for your participation let's close in prayer our gracious God we again thank you for this day this time we desire we thank you for the word that you've given us we desire to be good interpreters of the best interpreters that we can be that we might be thinking your thoughts after you and rightly living and applying them. Thank you for the privilege that we have together corporately now to worship our victorious and risen Lord and King Jesus. Be with our brother and Pastor Nick as he proclaims your word. O Holy Spirit, speak through him with power to our hearts so we might be conformed more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our great need and our desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.